I bless the Lord. I want to pick up what I shared last week. I hope that you can um, receive what I believe the Lord wants to speak to us. Chris and Isaac and Rodney and I were talking after church this morning. Well, dad was too, and, and then he left. I just think we've been a lot of years of building a foundation and sometimes <laughs> I build foundations. And a, a lot of times when we do that, uh, we pour the concrete, we take the forms off, we load them up, and we leave. And that's my job. But then other times, we have a chance to build on the foundation. And we get to come in and we get to frame also on the foundation that's been built. Well, I think the beauty... Um, you think about what Brother Man does. He travels, and uh, he does not work in the long-term process of building that immediate body, but he encourages the body. He gives energy for the building, let's say. He comes along and re-energizes the people who are in the church to get, a, get a busy with the building. But the work of a pastor is to construct, as the Lord sees fit, but to work long-term in the building project. And so we've been a lot of years. And um, something that has been happening to me, we have been here, and I will testify of this on Wednesday night, but we have been here Tuesday. We pulled into Charlie and Clarissa's driveway with the Pinsky and my work trailer and um, all of that stuff. We've been here a year Tuesday. And something that God has done in my heart that I did not expect, and I'm just, you know, I'm just sharing something quickly here, but I didn't expect the transition in my way of thinking that has been happening in my life. And I don't know what's made me um, open to that. I don't feel like I've done anything different. I don't feel like I'm better, more prepared, um, deserving but for some reason, I feel like that God has opened my eyes and I am seeing some things from a new perspective. Anybody else having that happen in your life? You know, not obligated to that. You don't have to feel stupid if that's not happening. But for me, that is happening. And things that I have read countless times through my life all of a sudden are, are maybe it's just that it's building on something that, you know, that happens Maybe it's my perspective's changing because we're in a new location. Maybe it's because God's not doing it the way I thought he should do it. And so it's opening my eyes to see things differently. But God has really been working something in my life. And, and I believe that we have such a beautiful foundation that's been built. And um, we want to continue with that. But I think that there's some emphasis that we need to reemphasize. And there's some things that we're going to come to understand and we're going to work on a little bit of that tonight. So everybody in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, say amen. <clears throat> For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I want you to also look at Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> and verse 20. Well, I wrote that down wrong because it can't be... Oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Okay, there we go. Um, now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. 2.5, 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator. Galatians 3.20... Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. I think there's something that the Lord would have us to hear tonight. Lord, I ask you that you would help me. <clears throat> Your word is, is there. It's alive and it's powerful. But we are frail and we are human and we are inept. And so, God, we pray that you would help me to deliver what you have put in my heart. Let it ring fresh and true in the hearts of this body. 
Lord, help us to grow and take us where maybe if we don't realize that you're taking us somewhere, God, prepare our hearts to receive what you are planning to plant in us down this road that we're walking on. And Jesus, we're going to give you the praise for it. And everybody say amen. <clears throat> Let me state a few things that we all know. But I think it's important to build this picture. Um, our phones came out with, I don't use it very often, but a few years ago, all of the phones started coming out with a panoramic picture. Anybody use that on your phone ever? You stand there and you move around in a circle and it gives you the whole room. I want to do that. I think scripture is important. Pastor labors to do this all of the time because we want to expand the view. Sometimes we get very myopic and we are looking at something so close that we cannot see the bigger picture. And we can become very focused on a lot of things that might be right, but if we don't have the bigger picture, then we're focusing on what is not important. And so we want to get the bigger picture here tonight. Sin of mankind created a gulf between God and man. That gulf, and I'm going to say some things that I don't have time to even cover, and so maybe you've thought of them, maybe I've said them before and you've heard them, or maybe you haven't. But that gulf between God and man was not an accident. It was placed by God. God put the tree in the garden in order that there would be a fence, in order that there would be sin, so that he might show his love toward us and come down, make himself known to his people, and then die on a cross to show us his love. The gulf was always intended to be there, and the gulf was always intended to be bridged by God. It's an important point that we understand. That gulf, though, that is there, that sin, separates the communion between us and God. It eliminated the access into direct, full relationship with God. When you think about what Adam and Eve had, and it seems like that in church I hear so often everybody's trying to get back to what Adam and Eve had, which was direct and full communion with God. But God wanted that communion to be different. Everybody say amen. amen. If God wanted that communion to stay that way, then he would not have put the tree in the garden. Everybody say amen. God wanted to come in a different way. God wanted to commune with man in a different way. And so he set it up from the very beginning. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Before any of this mud ball started spinning, before the stars are in the sky, before anything happens, God's plan was always the cross. God's plan was always, and I said this to Chris today, and I think it's worth repeating, and that is that the, the cross is not a picture of God's wrath. The cross is the picture of God's love. It always will be the greatest story of love. It's not a picture of God's wrath being poured out upon a son. It is God's picture to us of God's love being poured out toward humanity. Because God himself paid the price on the cross. God gave his own life. He laid it down to show us the love that he has for you and I. What is a mediator then? We read these two passages of scripture, both speaking of a mediator, both speaking of God being one in conjunction with a mediator. What is a mediator? But a mediator is one who interposes between two contending parties with their consent for the purpose of assisting them in settling their differences. In this case, the Greek root word literally means the middle. It means to be in the middle. Now, there are those who call themselves Christian mystics and by their own declaration have said that they are literally seeking an unmediated link to God. I have heard it with my own ears and read it with my own eyes. 
These people believe that there is an access to God that is available to them that does not require a mediator. But this is not so. And as long as you and I live on this earth, in this flesh, you will always access God through a mediator. There will never be a hyper... I don't care how, how powerful the, the music is playing, how anointed the preaching is, how much the quote-unquote Holy Ghost is moving. You will never get to a spot where you have an unmediated link or access to God. Your relationship with God, my relationship with God, will always go through the mediator. We have two parties, us and God. God's not confused. God's not divided, but we are. God is one, we are not. And the mediation does not need to happen between God and his son. Listen, they're really important. This mediation does not occur between father and son as though Jesus stands between us and a judgmental father to go between and plead our case to God. How many have heard that message through the years? Probably if you've been in church, everybody's heard that. That Jesus stands to bridge what should be the wrath of God being poured out upon us He took all of that wrath, but that is not at all what the case is. God understands something about you that you don't. You're not God. That's what God understands about you. We think we are. We think that somehow we can acquiesce to being God. How do I know that? Look at the Tower of Babel. This is exactly what they were trying to do. They said, we're going to build to where we can go up into the heavens, and we will not need God. There's always something inside of man that believes somehow we can circumvent the need for God. And whether it's a total circumvention of the need, or there's just some belief that, you know what, I need God, but also if I do a lot of really good things, then God will be a lot happier with me. It's just a natural thing of man. Our need for mediation is not, though, that Jesus stands between the Father and us. But what the mediation is, is this. God is God, you are not. You can't be God, but God can be man. And this is how the mediator comes into play. That God becomes flesh in order that we can now deal with God because we cannot deal with God as God. God is holy, you cannot approach him. What happened to the priest if he went into the holy place? just into the the shirt tails of the presence of God with sin in his life. What happened? Death, instantly. What happens when you put the the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and just the remnant of the presence of God is in that Ark? What happens when you reach out and touch that Ark? What happens? Death. The presence of God always brings death to humanity. When Isaiah is encountered with the presence of God, he's at a distance. He just sees the glory of God and he falls on his face and says, I am unclean, I don't belong in your presence. But something happens when the mediator comes. Something happens when Jesus shows up because all of the fullness of God dwells in him, but now we are able to touch him. We are able to handle him. He is Right in front of them, he walks with them, he eats with them, he talks with them, and he reveals the very nature of who God is and what his intention toward mankind is. If you only read the Old Testament, you would think that God's intention toward mankind is law and judgment. But when you get into the covenant that we live in, you realize that God's intention toward mankind is that he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that God commended his love. He showed his love to us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And no greater love has any man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. The story of God toward mankind in the Old Testament is one of judgment. 
The story of God toward man in the New Testament is a story of mediation. It's a story of love. It's a story of restoring communion with man. That's God's intention. Job has a perfect perspective in understanding that it is impossible to stand in the presence of God and to arbitrate your own position. We all know what Job went through. And for the sake of time, we won't cover all of that, but just remember that he has lost all of his wealth, all of his cattle, his children are dead, his wife sits and scoffs and mocks him because he will not curse God. And all of his comforters, anybody read through Job lately? How would you like to have those as friends? All of his comforters come and accuse him and say to him, the reason why you're going through what you're going through is because of sin in your life. Bildad the Shuhite, he comes to him and says, listen, God does not pervert justice. This is in the eighth chapter of Job, and I'm just summarizing. But you are getting what you deserve. You're a sinner. Your children were sinners, and God judged you accordingly. But if you will plead your case with God, and if you are pure and upright, then God will hear you and restore your property. This is the summation of what Bildad the Shuhite says to Job. The sum of it. You have sinned, but if, if you dress a certain way, this is religion today, if you do specific things, certainly God will be more pleased by you and you will be able to approach him. This is the exact same idea that Bildad comes to Job with. If you are really upright, then you have access and you can get to God and you can plead. You're telling us that this has just happened and that you're trusting God, but you're a liar and a hypocrite. That's what they're all saying to him. Because if you were really upright, if you really were living the way God intended you to live, none of this would have ever happened to you. No one will say this exactly, but I do believe this, that subliminally there is an idea that somehow works our works, coupled with Jesus, will be more pleasing to God. And I've been, I've been just, I've been hitting a wall with this in the last couple of months. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do not live holy and separated and well-pleasing to Him. But I am suggesting that that is the result of obeying His voice. Not the works that grant us greater access to his presence. I think there is a huge difference. And what I believe is so important for every one of us here, I don't know why God wants to drive this home, but I feel this so strongly in my heart. We've got to understand that when we come to God, we come through Christ and that's it. And remember, this, this Trinitarian idea that somehow we come to Jesus and then Jesus washes in his, us in his blood and then we go and then we're pleasing to the Father because he only sees the blood of Jesus. Remember, that's Trinitarian theology. God is how many? So when I come to Jesus, I come to who? God. So get out of your mind this idea that God is looking at you through Christ. That's not what the mediation is. The mediation is that I am encountering God himself. Everybody understand what I'm saying? Get this out of your mind that somehow, oh, I know I've done a lot of bad things, but the blood of Jesus is over me and now God can't see the sin. Get that out of your mind. Jesus is watching you as you walk up to him and he knows everything you have done. What do you bring to the party? What is it that you need to bring with you to Jesus so that you can be more pleasing to him? What is it that he's looking for you 
to drag along with you? What religious action, what rigmarole does Jesus want you to bring to the encounter with him? I would, I would submit to you that the more you bring, the worse it is. The more that you contribute to this, the worse it is because you come feeling as though, yeah, I'm coming to God, but I got a lot of things and, and, I, and I gave a Chris and Isaac a little prelude to this, but I went to the wrestling tournament yesterday and I saw some kids walking around and they've got medals hanging around their neck of their accolades that they just accomplished. And so I see us and we're coming to Jesus and we go, look, I've got a medal. Aren't you more pleased with me? Aren't you happier with me because of the medal I'm wearing? And he says, listen, I just want you to do what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> That's what this is. I want you to do what I'm telling you to do. I don't want you to do good works. I want you to obey my voice. There's a difference. So if I've told you to go wash people's feet and instead you went out and shoveled someone's driveway, you're not obeying me. They're both good things. But it's about obedience. It's not about good works. So when I come to Jesus, I don't need to bring anything with me. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? I don't have anything to contribute. I am sinner. I am undone. I am a mess. And I come to the Lord. I interact with the Almighty God. And is Jesus afraid of sin? Is Jesus afraid of what I've been? Is he more pleased that I wasn't just quite as bad as somebody else? Or is it that it's 100% about me coming to him and saying, Lord, Lord, I am your servant. Command me. And when I encounter him, every single time I encounter God, I am going to encounter who? Jesus Christ. I will always deal with the man. So even though there are going to be good works, let your good works shine before men that they will see them and glorify your father. Absolutely, there's going to be good works. But I want you to think about it in a different perspective. The good works are going to be the result of your obedience to Christ. The good works will never grant you access to him. Do you understand the difference? Because one is the idea of law the other is the idea of communion. Amen. One is the idea of trying to come by my own righteousness. The other is standing in front of him and saying, Lord, I am unrighteous. I am undone without you. But if you will command me, just speak the word and I will do it. Which one is the Lord looking for? Is the Lord looking for the bag of works? Or is the Lord looking for the humble servant? I think it's an important question. So we got this idea that if I do something to contribute, if I bring something, that somehow Jesus is going to be more pleased by me. But I, I begin to think about that this week, and I didn't even write it down, but I begin to think about that, where Jesus said, when the master has been out working, and the servant has been out working, and they come home, and the servant makes his master food, is the master going to congratulate him and say, oh, I'm just so proud of you, or is he just doing as a servant what's expected of him? Our obedience to the Lord is just simply what's expected of us. So we go out and we obey the Lord and then we want to come back and bring the trophy. You see what I'm saying? We want to come back with the trophy and say, look, Lord, I obeyed you, but I'm trying to tell you something to do now. I'm trying to instruct you today. I'm trying to get you to walk under my command. I don't care about the trophy. Good job. You did what you were supposed to do. Now, can we do what today can we talk about relationship that only exists with me as master and you as servant? Or are we going to be all caught up in how you dressed, what you wore, 
where you went and whether you spoke in tongues. Oh, no, no. We get access to God through speaking in tongues. No, we don't. No, we have access to God through Christ. Always through Christ. No, we get access to God through the Holy Ghost. No, you don't. You will always only access God through the mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. You will never have greater access through spiritual things than what you will find encountering Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. If you are looking for something more, you will land outside of God's will. You will go into areas that God never intended you to go into. Let me put this another way. Jesus doesn't want you in poverty. He is concerned about your greed. He's not worried about women wearing makeup or pants. He's concerned about modesty in your heart. He's not confused about our natural circumcision. He wants the cutting away of the flesh of your heart. He's not worried about alcohol. He is commanding us about sobriety. Do you understand the difference? We can be poor, ugly, circumcised, and never touch alcohol and split hell wide open. Why? Because that's not what it's about. All of that becomes, I don't need the mediator. I'm doing the good works. Look at how I've dressed. Look at what I've done. Look, I speak in tongues. Look, we had Holy Ghost revival. Look, I don't drink. Look at all these things, God. Look at me, look at me. And Jesus is saying what? Come to me. Come to me. Stop looking for something else. Stop expecting something else. Stop hoping for more than Christ. The fullness of the godness dwells in him bodily. Modesty, humility, sobriety, and denying our fleshly desires are not the access point to God. They are the result of being in the presence of Jesus. Am I totally just speaking to myself or is anybody understanding what I'm saying? Those things do not grant us greater access. Okay. If, let me, let me give you around this thing. If you come to Jesus by his grace, what do you bring for salvation? Anybody bringing anything for salvation? Oh man, you guys are all scared to answer. The answer is no. We don't bring anything for salvation. How was salvation acquired? By faith in Christ and the washing of his blood, which comes from our faith being placed in him. Okay? Jesus, the mediator. Now, day two, how do I approach God? Jesus, the mediator. What did I need to bring day one? Nothing. Okay, what do I need to bring day two? The same thing I brought day one. Because it's about faith and obedience to his voice. And I know that can sound like I'm talking in circles, but I'm really not trying to do that. I'm trying to paint the picture of the difference between relationship of a servant and a master and relationship of a law of sin and death and us trying to circumvent Christ to get to God. And the, the Trinitarian and the apostolic oneness alike all believe somehow that my works couple with this to get me greater access. And I'm telling you that Jesus is the mediator today and he is the mediator tomorrow. He is the same yesterday, today, and Forever. So the same one I needed mediation for when I began my journey with God is the exact same mediator that I'm going to approach tomorrow morning when I wake up and say, Lord, my Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's the same exact one. 
the same access point and the same one I'm getting into. My job is to walk through the door of Christ and stay in him. It's my job. It's my duty. God's not more pleased by your spiritual accolades. He's not. He's pleased by your service of obedience to his voice. We can see Christians who are totally fleshed, indulgent, caught in entertainment, self-pleasure, always satisfying the carnal nature. It is the result of being out of the presence of God. The way into the presence of God is not through our works, but through the man, Jesus Christ. The result of being in Jesus Christ is that he will begin to cut away the flesh of our lives, bring in modesty, remove hypocrisy, and install sobriety. That's the result of my obedience to him. But again, to be very redundant, not the access to him. My access to Christ is the same every day. Now I know I would believe that for probably most of us, this is new thought. Because it's not how I've thought about it most of my life. But I just simply have come to the point now where I just, I feel like that what I need to do tomorrow when I wake up is say, dad has been saying this for years. He'll just sometimes kneel down or walk down the road and put his hands up and say, Lord, here I am. What is relationship about between a master and a servant? What is it about? Oh, look, we cast out demons in your name. And we've done good works in your name. And look at all that we've done in your name. Who are you? Who, who is it that, who's talking to me? I don't know you. Get away from me. What do you want from me today? What is my day supposed to look like? Jesus, I'm going to sum it up for you. Here's all the law and the prophets. It's all summed up in this. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. If you want mediation, you're going to have to understand God is one. And then you need to love that one with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, that's going to help you to love your neighbors yourself. And if you can do that, if you'll walk in those things that I tell you, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. Don't worry about it. Stop trying to not murder. Stop trying to not uh, uh, commit adultery. Stop trying to st not steal. Stop trying to do all that stuff and just listen to me. Because if you walk in my spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So I, I got to get to Job. Let me look at Job chapter 9. If, you're, if you have your Bible, look at this. This is really, this is really amazing. I saw something I've never seen before in the book of Job. Job is considered to be the oldest book in the Bible, written before any other book, written by Moses. I believe Job was like the great-grandson or the grandson of, oh, who was it? I don't remember now. But one of Abraham's seed. The oldest book in the Bible, and, and I saw something. So remember, Bildad's saying, hey, listen, you come... And if you're righteous and if you've done all these things, you've got access to God. It's there. Let, let me tell you, it's there. But listen to Job's answer in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, verse 2, I know it is so of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? Look at verse 3. If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and who hath prospered? Job says, listen, Bildad, fill you in on something. If you're really wise and somehow could find access to stand before God, who would dare? Who thinks that you could answer God even one of a thousand times if you were in a debate that you could beat him? 
You think that somehow that you can come with all of your wisdom, all of your works, everything you've done and present them before God? Job just makes this really clear. It's not gonna happen. It's never going to happen. What a beautiful revelation Job has. Job is upright. He's living as he should. He's blameless before God. And yet he understands that he can never approach God on his own merit. Even though he is right with God, he realizes that he can never defend his position before God. I, I don't know why the oldest book, the, one of the first guys to deal with this issue, he somehow has it figured out, but we can't. But look down at verse 27. If I say, I will forget my complaint and I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself, I am afraid of all my sorrows and I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet thou shalt plunge me in a ditch and my own clothes shall abhor me. For he is not a man as I am. That I should answer him and that we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysmen betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. Scholars do not believe this passage to be of any significance or prophetic foreshadowing, but I do. Job drives home the point, and let me read it to you out of the NIV, which I don't really care for too often, but let's just put it in plain English what he's saying. Same passage, if I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all of my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent since I am already found guilty. Why should I struggle in vain? Even if I wash myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you should plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes detest me. He is not a mere mortal like me that I should answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it stands with me, I cannot. Job gets to the heart of the matter. It's not my righteousness that is the problem. It is the fact that there is not a mediator for Job. Job is upright. The scripture declares him to be upright. But your uprightness does not get you access to God. Do you understand what I'm driving at? Your uprightness does not earn you access to God. And Job, in his most miserable condition, says, listen, if there was a daysman, that's what it means, an umpire, an arbitrator, somebody to go between, someone to stand in the middle, a mediator, then I could talk to God. But it's not true with me. Can I tell you tonight that it is true for us? What an awful place for Job to be in. I would hate to try to compare my righteousness with Job's righteousness. 
I look at me and I, and I can, can see God's testimony concerning Job. I know most of you standing here tonight would not be so bold with God's testimony concerning us. That, that God literally says to the devil, have you considered my servant Job? He's upright in all things. I don't think that God's going to give that same testimony of what I have been. It's not the uprightness. But fear and distress and turmoil have brought Job to the place where he realizes that if he could confront God, if he could just, if he could just talk to God, everything could be settled. All he needs is a word from God and, and be able to, to interact. He needs a mediator. And my mind immediately goes to Philip. The last night, as Jesus has told them, I am going away, but you should not be afraid. You are never going to see me again. (laughs) I'm not going to walk the earth with you, but I don't want you to worry. And the disciples are in a panic. And Philip's response to Jesus is, in all of this, okay, this is crazy. You're leaving. We don't know what's going to happen but if you will just show us God, it'll be enough. It will satisfy us. If we can just get access, tell us how to get to the Father. It'll be enough. And Jesus' response, as we know so well, is how long have you been with me and you still don't know who I am? Who this man that is with you is. When you have seen me. When you have walked with me. When you have talked with me. You have not just seen the mediator. But you have seen the father himself. You have encountered God. You're looking for something to settle your confusion, to cause there to be rest inside of you because of the turmoil that's going to happen around you. And Jesus says, but listen, I am the one you're looking for. I'm the answer. He goes on to tell them, listen, don't be troubled. Don't worry about this. I'm not going to leave you orphans because I'm going to return to you. You're going to have a comforter or the Greek word, a paraclete, one who is going to come beside you and mediate for you. And you know who it's going to be? The spirit of truth. And you know who he is because he's with you now. But he's going to be in you. It's all him. It's 100% Jesus. And our interaction will always be in Christ. If we want to be right with God, it will always be by us being fully and totally placed in Christ. Job says, listen, if there was a days man I could talk to, if there was a mediator, but we have the days man, we have the mediator, the theanthropos, which in Greek means the God man, Emmanuel, God with us, God in Christ Jesus, Reconciling the world to himself. The mediation between God and man is rooted in the fact that God is one. The mediation, as I said before, is not about God mediating between God. It's about God reaching out and touching man. God is not confused about God. God doesn't need any mediation. That's why it says where there is two parties, it requires mediation, but God is one. The mediation is not because God needs mediation. The mediation is because we need an arbitrator. Because we need to encounter the man, Christ Jesus. We will never exhaust the revelation of the knowledge of God found in Jesus Christ. I spent 
and I think back to my life, I spent so many, so many hours as a young, say a child, a 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, at altars, praying because of what the environment religiously we were in, praying to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Constantly being reminded that if I was upright, if I was doing things that were right, then I would be filled with the Holy Ghost. How can I do that which is right without the Holy Ghost? How can I do what is right without the Spirit of God? You mean, before I can encounter God's Spirit, I've got to get my life all cleaned up? I've got to get everything turned around? I've got to get everything fixed? I could never do it. But the truth of the matter is when I come to Jesus, bringing what? Nothing. Bringing nothing to the party. And I come to Jesus and I say, Lord, Fill me with your presence. Jesus, become Lord of my life. Then his spirit begins to take residence inside of me and it provokes me unto good works. The result of God's presence in your life is 100% dependent on his grace. And has nothing to do with your works. Well, I got to be baptized in Jesus' name. Nope. If it's something that's required by man, it's of works. Well, I need to, to look a certain way. Thank God he received every one of us when we didn't look a certain way. Again, I'm not, Pastor Rodney, are you changing how? No, no, no. I believe how we're living is the right way. But I want to recommend to you, don't come to God with the stuff. Come to Jesus and say, Lord, you are my master and I am your servant. I'm not bringing anything to you. I'm not expecting that you owe me anything because of what I've done or have not done or how I've walked or have not walked. I am coming to you because you said that we could approach your throne. I am coming to you because you said, Jesus, that if, if we being bad fathers know how to give our children good gifts, then how much more would you give us your spirit if we asked for it? So is Jesus a liar or are his words true? Do we come bringing stuff with us or do we come and say, Lord, you are my mediator. You are my access. You are the door and to the sheepfold. You are the sheepfold and you're the lamb. You know what I figured out? It's every bit about him. 100%. I want to close with this one last verse. And to me, it encouraged me all the more. And that is in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. I don't know if you've thought about this. Was Paul concerned that the Ephesian church would be full of the Holy Ghost? Is that what he says here? No. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. We receive the Spirit of God. I don't like the term Holy Ghost. And we receive the Spirit of God which is holy when we receive Christ, it's His Spirit. So we need to put that to rest. 
Listen. That ye be rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passeth all knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you become filled with all the fullness of God? By knowing the breadth and the width and the depth and the height of Christ. That's what he just said. It's all in him. As we grow, we never grow out of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Always abounding. Ever growing in grace and knowledge of who? Jesus Christ. We never get to the point where we have matured beyond him. Let me finish by saying this. We don't preach a lot of shouting messages around here anyway, but this, I understand it not to be a shouting message. I hope it's a message that you will take and think about, chew on for some time. Jesus never becomes a hand-me-down. And your spiritual maturity is never going to be based on what you can do. I can prophesy. I'm spiritually mature. No. Well, I can speak in tongues. No. Well, I uh, have words of wisdom. No. Well, I can do miracles. No. Does God work in those things at times? Absolutely. But the maturity of your life is not gauged by those things. The strength and the maturity of your life, if we could measure it, which there is no tangible measurement, would be how deeply can you plant yourself in Christ to get to all the fullness of God. Amen? Amen. Pastor, why don't you come and close us tonight?